Father in heaven, you are the great I am. Lord, and because you are the great I am, we have gathered this morning. We've gathered on a Sunday morning, Lord, because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We remember on Sundays that the tomb was empty. Lord, that the grave could not hold you. That death could not contain you. And because you live, we know that we have hope of life. So we sing those promises. We ask to walk closer to you. And we study your word. Father, this morning, as as with every morning, I know that I am weak. I know that I am unworthy. I know that I am unable. But your word and your spirit are sufficient. So, Spirit, would you move through the reading, through the teaching, through the proclamation of your holy word this morning. Father, they're not Paul's words. They're not Nathan's words. They're your words. Would you pierce our hearts, Lord, to convict us of where we have failed, that we might walk closer to you. Lord, would you encourage us where we have become distraught and discouraged and depressed. Lord, would you challenge us where we need to be motivated. Lord, would you move in power to comfort those who are hurting, who are walking through sorrow and sadness. Remind us of the hope and the joy that is found in the good news that Jesus, you still save today. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to take them with me once again. We're going to turn again to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, New Testament book. You go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then you hit Galatians. I always Remember where Galatians is because I have a little acronym that helps me navigate my way through Paul's letters. It's the General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If I don't say it, I can't find where any of those letters are. So I have to say it every time. I'm sure you're sick of hearing it. But we are in Galatians again this morning. We'll be reading verses chapter 1, verses 11 through chapter 2, verse 2. I know we have stood up and sat down many a time this morning, but it is worth keeping us awake to do so once more. Would you please, if you're physically able, stand with me out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word, and we will follow the same formula. I will read for us. I will finish verse 2 and say, this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. As we look together now at Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, the word of the Lord says, For I would have you know, brothers, That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. 
But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, in what I am writing to you before God. I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running, nor had not run in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you will remember with me, last week we began in this study, in this sermon series, through the book of Galatians. And Paul starts off, and remember he kicks the Galatians in the teeth with what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. He doesn't give a flowery greeting. He is immediately astonished at how they have distorted or perverted or changed or believed a false Gospel. What we talked about last week is the gospel that is taught in the Holy Word of God is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It is not grace and faith plus. It is not grace plus anything. It is by God's grace. It is through our faith and it is in Jesus Christ. Christ alone. There is nothing else that we have to do in order to be acceptable to God. There is nothing else that we have to do in order to be saved. We do not do good works or random acts of kindness or acts of excellence or ministry so that we will be saved. We do kind things. We love others because we have been saved. When the grace of God gets a hold of us, when we believe by faith, it is a faith that changes our lives. It is not that we change our lives so that God will accept us. And so that's the established foundation for the rest of the book of Galatians. Paul sets out that it is Jesus Christ. He did everything necessary in his virgin birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Everything was accomplished that was necessary for our salvation. He didn't say on the cross, all right, guys, I got it started. You go finish it up. He said, it is finished. And if we believe any other gospel other than that, we are believing a distorted, a perverted, a false gospel. Even if, Paul says, multiple times, if an angel were to descend among us and tell us something other than grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we would know that that angel would be accursed. Anyone preaching anything else than that, Paul says, let them be accursed. But see, now Paul moves on because he's been taking a whole lot of criticism. What people are saying is that Paul is a plagiarist. That what Paul has done is he has written a research paper and he's copied somebody else's paper and put his name upon it. That he is copying all the other apostles and now he's trying to achieve some sort of a position of prominence in the church by copying what the other apostles say. So in these verses we see Paul on the defensive. 
Paul is saying, no, 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 you have to understand. Let me tell you where my message is from. Let me tell you what I've gone through. And let me give you several contradictions to that argument. So he starts off in verse 11. I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was preached by me, the gospel Paul preaches is not man's gospel. Verse 12, he did not receive it from any man, nor was he taught it. It was not like Peter went and found Paul and said, Hey, buddy, why don't you just come study under me for a while and I'll help you be a Christian. I'll help you start promoting the church instead of persecuting the church. Don't you want to come? Look, if that had happened, then Paul would have killed Peter on the spot. Paul was actively persecuting the church. There's nobody that said, I would like to mentor the fiercest persecutor we have right now. He has killed numerous of our brothers and sisters. But I, I shall be the difference maker. I will go and I will take Paul under my wing and he shall become an apostle and a missionary. Nobody said that. Paul's not copying anybody. Paul says something that in this particular instance, it is a solid proof of his apostleship. But if we were to say it today, I'm going to tell you straight up, I'd probably give you a very polite response, but I would look at you and I would think you're crazy. Paul says, well, Jesus himself appeared to me and taught me this gospel. Folks, I don't know. Maybe it's a consensus in this room. If somebody comes up to you and says, let me tell you something, Luke, Jesus appeared to me and he told me that I'm supposed to go blow up a stadium. Luke's probably going to look at him and go, I don't think that's such a good idea. You probably shouldn't follow through with that. All right, none of us are going to go, yeah, that's Jesus. He showed up. He told you that. All of us are going to think you're crazy if you show up and go, well, Jesus showed up in the vision to me. Everybody in modern times that says Jesus showed up to me says something like, Jesus told me to go kill so-and-so. Jesus told me to go blow up so-and-so. Jesus doesn't say that stuff. We would write people off as crazy immediately. I mean, we might be polite on the front end. Oh, Jesus spoke to you. Oh, okay, that's, that's wonderful. So What exactly did Jesus say? He said that I should go and commit mass murders. You know, I don't really see Jesus saying that a lot in the Bible. That kind of contradicts what we're coming across. But see, that's the craziness of the message of the Judaizers. That's why in this particular instance, Paul is set up for this to be a solid proof that he is teaching and preaching the true and right gospel. None of the Judaizers can turn around and say, I was appeared to in a vision by Jesus. Jesus showed up and told me that everybody who wants to believe in him must first become a Jew and work really hard and follow the law. And then they can become a Christian. If they want to become a Christian, they must be circumcised. Nobody who's coming behind Paul as a false prophet, as a false teacher can make that claim with any creditation whatsoever. Everybody's going to know that that is a false gospel. That's not what the apostles are teaching. What Paul is teaching is so close to what the apostles teach. It is a miracle in and of itself. Paul is teaching the same gospel even though he did not confer with them. We see about this in Acts chapter 9. And the beauty of Scripture is that Paul wrote Galatians, but Luke wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts and the book of Galatians agree perfectly on Paul's testimony. Paul says that after he left his former life in Judaism, that he didn't go to anybody. He didn't go anywhere, but Jesus himself showed up to him. You can find these events in Acts chapter 9. He's walking on his way on the road to Damascus, and he is 
blinded by a brilliant light, and Jesus speaks to Saul of Tarsus, who will later be known as Paul. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Folks, don't ever miss when you're going through Acts chapter 9. Jesus makes himself synonymous with his church. If you are in the church, you are in Jesus. If you're in a church that is a church of Jesus Christ, you are in the body of Jesus. He doesn't say, why do you persecute my church? He says, why do you persecute me? And then Paul is blinded and he's taken and he meets this man named Ananias. And Ananias lays hands on him and scales fall from Paul's eyes. And from that moment onward, he is changed forever. And he doesn't stay and spend a ton of time with Ananias. He doesn't go and meet Peter or the other apostles. He goes to Arabia. So how we should read that is Saudi Arabian desert. He's in Damascus. The desert's not that far. It's out of like a church member's backyard at this point. He goes off into the wilderness and Jesus himself shows up and ministers to Paul for three years straight. And so then when Paul finishes that three-year time frame with Jesus, which is amazing because Paul will refer to himself in other letters as an apostle who was unnaturally born, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and he, least of all, as one who was born unnaturally. And yet Jesus appears to Paul and spends the same amount of time with Paul in the desert as he does in ministry with those who walked and talked with him while he was on this earth before he went to the cross. Jesus takes Paul through the same process. Three years Paul spends learning directly from Jesus. I didn't immediately go to anybody or anywhere in verse 16, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Then in 18, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Now that's just the Aramaic word for rock. So Peter's name in Greek is Petros. We call him Peter because Peter means rock. Cephas is just Aramaic for rock. He's talking about Peter. He goes and he visits Peter. He only spends like two weeks with Peter. If you're going to plagiarize Peter, you've got to spend a lot more time with him than two weeks. And then I love the way he words this. This will come back into play later, I promise. But look at what he says. Not only did I spend about 15 days there with Peter, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Notice that in the construction of how that's written, James is categorized as an apostle. Not James, John's brother, James, Jesus's brother. I didn't see any other apostles. Well, I saw one other apostle, and that was James, the brother of Jesus. One of the other traditions that got handed down through the Catholic Church, we talked about indulgences, we talked about Pope Leo last week, we talked about Martin Luther. One of the other traditions that has been handed down in the Catholic Church is the perpetual virginity of uh, Mary. And it's very hard for us to believe that if we're listening to the actual words of Jesus because Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that James was the brother of Jesus. James, the Lord's brother. If Mary was never having any other children, how's Jesus got a brother? It just it doesn't work out. And that brother is counted among the apostles. His brother, the one who grew up with him, who teased him as a child. You know what flipped his mind? His brother died and rose from the dead. He went, you know what, maybe he wasn't just an average brother after all. And now James, Jesus' brother, is a leader in the church. And those are the only two people that Paul talks to. How am I going to be plagiarizing them when I spent three years studying under Jesus and then I only spent two weeks with them? 
And then after that, he goes to Syria and Cilicia. Those are the two places where he is unknown to all the other believers in Judea. Nobody knows who Paul is. Nobody knows what's going on with Paul except for the fact that the one who used to be the most fervent persecutor is now the most fervent promoter. And so he spends 14 more years in Syria and Cilicia. This is 17 years since Paul met Jesus and began his training to be an apostle, to be a preacher, to write these letters. So I have encouragement for you. If you are planning on going into the ministry and you are suffering through three, four years of seminary, don't worry. Paul spent 17 years preparing and planning. If you're sitting in this sermon right now going, wow, man, this preacher needs a lot of work. I just want to remind you, I went to seminary for about three, three and a half years. I ministered at a church before I came here for about three years, and I've been here for almost four years. If you add all that up, I still got seven years to go before I'm good. So just hang in there with me, and we'll get there eventually, all right? Took Paul 17 years to get where he was, and this is all time that he is not around the apostles. Then the most miraculous thing happens. Paul goes to the apostles with Barnabas and Titus, After 17 years, and he goes up because he wants to make sure that the gospel he's preaching is the same as the gospel they're preaching and teaching. He wants to make sure that they are on the same page. There's things that take place in the the book of Acts in chapters 14 and 15. It's called the Jerusalem Council. All of these churches are dealing with these false prophets saying, you have to be circumcised. Well, then in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 14 and 15, they make a decision. All the apostles, all the leadership of the church, and they say, that's not necessary. All that you do is if you trust in Jesus, the only things that the the law is requiring of you is to avoid sexual immorality, don't eat food that is sacrificed to idols, don't eat blood, and don't eat things that have been strangled. Those are the only four things. You don't have to be um, circumcised. You don't have to follow the Jewish law. Just try to do those four things. And that's the decision at the Jerusalem Council. They say it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here are four good things to start trying to do after you've believed in Jesus. So that's why Paul goes back to them to double check, to make sure that the gospel is the same. And somehow, by God's grace and by God's mercy... Their messages match up perfectly. Folks, I want you to consider the impossibility of Jesus showing up to Paul and then teaching Paul the same things that he taught the apostles. This is like as though I wanted to dig a tunnel for safety underneath the church, a secret passage, if you will. And so I decide that that's a good idea. Unbeknownst to me, Shannon decides it's a wonderful idea as well. Shannon gets a head start because he already has much of the equipment necessary. I'm just using a shovel. But we're digging, and neither one of us know that we're digging. We're trying to come and make a whole pathway up underneath this church. What's the likelihood that even though we have the same idea, even though we're digging towards the same goal, what's the likelihood that we meet in the middle and our holes actually form one tunnel? He's digging a completely different way, and I'm digging a completely different way. But the Lord miraculously brings the two of us together, and we meet right up underneath the church. And we have one tunnel and one pathway. You see, Shannon was inspired by the Lord in one way, and God guided him right to the right point. I would have been inspired by the Lord in another way, and God guided me to the exact right point. 
You may think, okay, Pastor, I mean, that's, that's kind of nifty. Listen, the odds of that happening are one in, in millions. But it's also an, an example of what happens in Scripture. While Hezekiah is king, they have problems getting water. And so Hezekiah has a scouting party go out and start digging back towards Jerusalem. And then he has a party dig in Jerusalem to go meet them. And God miraculously makes those two tunnels meet together. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It still exists today. You can go walk through it. I know because I got the chance to walk through it myself. It still delivers water in and out of Jerusalem. It's an amazing, miraculous event of the Lord. I want to submit to you today that what Jesus does in presenting himself to Paul and presenting himself to the apostles and giving all of them the same message is equally as miraculous because there's plenty of false gospels to go around. Paul says, listen, this could only have been done by Jesus. The gospel that I preached, that it is Jesus Christ and him alone, the only way I could have come to know that was through Jesus. One of those evidences that we kind of brushed past was what he says in verse 13. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Folks, you just don't turn around that quick. You just don't give up something that has been your life. It's the air that you breathe. It's the food that you eat unless something miraculous has happened. And what what does Paul say? Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism. I was going beyond many, my own age, many of my peers. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of, of my fathers. Folks, Paul gave that up. He gave up the traditions of his fathers because he met Jesus. And what happens to us is that sometimes we grow up with Jesus and the traditions of our fathers get conflated with Jesus. And so instead of leaving the traditions of our forefathers, we begin to believe a perverted and distorted gospel. And this is where cultural Christianity thrives. You know, in in the southeast of the United States of America, here in Alabama, the Bible buckle, the buckle of the Bible belt. It is easy to follow the traditions of your fathers, to believe in your heritage. And it's like a buffet, right? We have a heritage, a tradition that's, that's like a buffet line that you go through and there's various dishes throughout the buffet. And so what cultural Christianity would say about us and about our traditions from our father is that in this buffet line, we have great traditions surrounding family and getting together and taking care of our family, having family reunions. We have a lot of traditions about college football and what team that you support and how avidly you support that team. We have traditions about we drink beer and that's what we're known for and we listen to country music and we listen to country and western music and that's what we're known for and we get rowdy sometimes and that's what we're known for and by golly we love the confederate battle flag and that's what we're known for and we also love the American flag and that's what we're known for and then one of the dishes somewhere down here on the end is some Christianity. You know, every now and again we go to church. We, we go to church every so often because, you know, that's part of our culture. That's part of our heritage. We go to church. We fly in the back of our pickup trucks. We got one flag that's the Confederate battle flag. And we got one flag that's the don't tread on me flag. Or maybe it's the American flag. Who knows? But those are the folks that we are. That's how the rest of the world sees us. And that's the culture that we grow into. 
But those are the traditions of our fathers. That's not the gospel. That is a perverted version of the gospel. The Confederate flag does not have anything to do with the true gospel. An extreme patriotism has nothing to do with the true gospel. The gospel says that we belong to Jesus and we leave those traditions behind. We're no longer citizens of this country. We're citizens of heaven first and foremost. It is not a dish in a buffet. It is the appetizer, the entree, the main course, the dessert, and everything in between. And it's the most extravagant and decadent meal that we could ever put on our taste buds because it is the beauty of the gospel. And it is not country and western in our culture. It's Jesus. And folks, I want you to know that we fall into the trap of just kind of dabbling in our tradition and believing in Jesus. And it just doesn't work. Paul cut ties. The gospel demanded that he no longer seek to advance in Judaism. The gospel demanded that Paul give up his status and his prestige and his position so that he could submit everything to Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I fully give. The gospel is not affiliation with any political party or any position in any political party. Lord knows that that doesn't help anything. We got one political party praying to Brahma, saying amen and a woman. We got another political party trying to start an insurrection, storming the Capitol. If you're finding your identity in your political party, you're still dabbling in the traditions of our fathers. And that's not the gospel. That's a distorted, perverted version of the gospel. And if Paul were alive today, he would write a letter to us exactly like the Galatians and say, You foolish Christians, I'm astonished that you've abandoned the gospel so that you can be prominent in your culture and your society. So that you can do the things that you enjoy doing and not devote your life to Christ. And that's where we've ended up. That's who we are as a culture. That's who we are as a society, especially in the Bible buckle in Alabama. And you know this, this isn't new. This, is, this isn't recent. Don't think that cultural Christianity started in the 1950s. This, this really gets going in about 313. Yeah, I'm talking about 1,700 years ago. There was a guy named Constantine. The last emperor died and the empire got divided up. And Constantine decides he's going to become the one emperor over all the Roman Empire. And as he's going into battle, he says, I'm going to go to sleep. And he goes to sleep and he has a dream and a vision. And in the vision, he sees a cross. And then he sees the first two Greek letters of Jesus' name, of Christ. He sees the chi and the row and they're overlaid over the cross. And he hears a voice that says, by this sign, you shall be victorious. So he wakes up the next morning and he says, before we go to battle, everybody got to get one of these crosses and a Cairo put on the front of their shield. So they get put on the front of their shield. Lo and behold, he wins. And he says, hey, this Jesus fellow ain't so bad. So he issues what's called the Edict of Milan. And for the first time in all of Christian history, Christians are popular. It is now vogue to be a Christian. If you want to get in good with Constantine, you need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Constantine begins to go and search and do things for Christianity and spread Christianity far and wide. He was a wonderful guy, but his idea of Christianity was, I like this Jesus fella. He helped me win that battle. Helped me be the emperor. I reckon I ought to build some temples and build some things for him. So people all throughout the Roman Empire went, well, 
what ought we ought to do with all of our regular pagan ceremonies? And they started to conflate them with Christianity. And the traditions began to merge. And cultural Christianity took shape. Up until that point, and even today, the places where Christianity thrives is where it is not popular to be a Christian. The place where Christianity is growing in leaps and bounds, it's growing with the fuel being the blood of the martyrs. And we sit comfortable and convenient thinking, well, you know, I I can keep my life about like it is, and I can trust in Jesus, and those things don't argue with one another. We try to live like this is the era of Constantine. And that's not the truth anymore. Folks, we have to break from our traditions and go full on, headlong, into the gospel. We cannot put hope in the United States of America. It's not that flag and a cross hidden behind it. It's not that flag with Cairo and a cross stapled onto it. It's a cross and nothing else. An empty cross and an empty grave. That is the symbol of our citizenship and the nation to which we belong. Jesus began a kingdom... And it's a kingdom that's not of this world. Jesus preached a gospel that's a pure gospel that says anyone, whosoever, will believe in Him, will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus said, how do we live? When we said, how do we live this eternal life? How do we live out this kingdom? He said, you love God with everything that you have, with everything that you are, with your heart, with your mind, with your soul, with your strength. And then you love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. This is the heart of the gospel. It's not a political party. It's not a flag. It's the cross. It's the empty tomb. It's righteousness given to us that we never deserve. It's a penalty that we should have received, but Christ took in our place. And if you wonder, all right, well, I mean, maybe Paul writes about that, but everyone in of the apostles agrees on this. I just, I just want to leave you with, with one last thing. We'll wrap up. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We pay a lot of attention to John 3.16. 2 Peter 3.16 is an equally powerful verse. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 3. I just want to read verses 15 and 16. The message that Paul is preaching is recognized as Scripture. The message of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone is recognized by Peter himself as scriptural. Look with me in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, According to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, if this doesn't give you encouragement, okay? I don't know where you are in your walk, but if you've ever read some of Paul's letters, there's been times where you've gone, what is he talking about? I want you to read what Peter says about Paul's letters. There are some things in these letters, in them, the letters that he referred earlier. There's some things in them that are hard to understand. Praise God, can I get an amen? If you've ever read Romans chapter 9, you know what I'm talking about. There's some hard things to understand, and we just go, hey, Peter didn't get it either, all right? Sometimes you just depend on the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't know what Paul was talking about sometimes either. Praise Jesus, we aren't alone. Which the ignorant and unstable twist, they're hard to understand, but ignorant and unstable false prophets come in after Paul, and they twist these things, and it leads to their own destruction. 
And then look what it says, as they do the other scriptures. This is the same construction Paul used when referring to James. I didn't see any of the other apostles except James. He says, as they do in all the other scriptures, putting in Peter's writing and leadership by the Holy Spirit that Paul's letters are scriptural. That Paul's letters are the very words breathed out by God. Scripture attests to itself different authors writing decades apart saying that this gospel is the same gospel. All of us are in agreement that this gospel is one unified message. And it's about a cross that was born for our sake. It's about a death that was died on our behalf. And it was about a resurrection where a tomb was empty and death was conquered so we could have hope of life. Folks, that is the message of the gospel. It's what Peter says. It's what Paul says. It's what the very words of Jesus declare to us over and over again. And so this morning, if you've never believed, I encourage you, believe. There's only one way to be saved. By God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that His death covers our penalty. And this morning, if you're like me, and the traditions of your fathers, your heritage, has conflated and mixed in and merged with the traditions of Jesus Christ, let us repent and be found as citizens of heaven messengers and ambassadors of this gospel message, not of the message that our family handed down to us, but the message we learn from Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, I thank you so much that you made a way for Paul. God, that you by your grace and by your mercy, broke him free of his other traditions that he followed. Lord, that you saved him from his sin. And even though he was a murderer, even though he killed innocent people who belonged to your church, to your body, you offered forgiveness even to him. So, Lord, I I know today that even though I am wretched, even though I am sinful, you offer forgiveness to me. That, Lord, there's not a soul in here listening and praying along with me that can't receive forgiveness from you. No matter how gross the sin, no matter how deep the need for grace, your grace is greater than all our sin. Lord, help us to repent, to live for you, to break from the traditions of the past. Not to be cultural Christians, but to be sold out. To be citizens of heaven. Lord, we love you. We need you this morning. We ask that during this time of response that, Spirit, you might move. And that we might respond in obedience. We ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit.